1982. It's a beautiful sunsplash day up in the northern part of Israel. I was on a bus with some fellow students from the Hebrew University in a biblical archaeology class. We're going from Megiddo, where the Battle of Armageddon will take place, Valley of Jehoshaphat below, and up to Chatzor, another famous battleground of Israel's history. Now, when Lori and I were traveling around in Israel, uh, especially up in the north, it was of interest to me to note how often you would see a military vehicle. Now, here in the United States, every once in a while, particularly on a weekend, we might see some convoy of uh, military trucks that are around as the National Guard do their uh, exercises for reserve duty. But I've never lived near a military base where there were a lot of tanks and things that were visible. But in Israel, it was not unusual to see a flatbed truck go by with a tank on it. Um, and the Merkava tank that Israel had developed was especially of interest because it was modern, it was new, it was big. Uh, but it was different while I was on this bus ride because there wasn't just one flatbed truck with a tank on it. There were several that would go by, and then a small convoy, and then some armored personnel carriers. And I thought, oh, so they must be having some kind of an exercise uh, for a military drill, perhaps for the reserve units. But then I saw cars, civilian cars, racing up the road, pulling off the side into a field, men jumping out, taking off their civilian clothes, grabbing their uniforms, donning them, and then racing to the north. And then there were Israeli military aircraft that were flying overhead. And I thought, boy, this really is some kind of an exercise. It was not uncommon. In fact, it was the usual practice of bus drivers to turn on the news on the hour. Beep, beep, beep. Here's the news from the voice of Israel. And the very first item said that Israeli forces were massing on the northern border of Lebanon to go in and to eradicate those places that Katusha rockets had been raining down from. This is the closest I've ever been to war, to see military troops advancing with all their equipment and with speed to get up to the battleground. By that evening, after our tour group had returned to Jerusalem and I was watching the news, Menachem Begin, who was the sitting prime minister of Israel, the equivalent of the president here in the United States, was sitting on the hill up in southern Lebanon where the Katusha rockets had been fired from. Shalom La Galil, Operation Peace for Galilee, literally was over in a day. Literally in a day, there was the conquest of enemy territory. Now, in every decade since Israel was founded as a modern state in 1948, Israel's been involved in military conflict. 1956, there was the, the Sinai War with Egypt. The, probably the most famous was 1967, the Six-Day War. And the prowess of the uh, Israeli military was on full display. In six days, they defeated the enemy armies of Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, 
And it was an overwhelming victory, and the world was, you talk about shock and awe, everybody was in awe of, of Israel. And so then you fast forward to the Yom Kippur of 1973. It was October 6th. It was a Shabbat. It was the time of, of rest. It was a, the most solemn day of the Jewish calendar, the Day of Atonement. And even secular Jewish people uh, tend not to be out and about on Yom Kippur. It's, it's very silent. There's no traffic in the streets. Uh, the religious are going to synagogue and fasting. And among the military, there are many who are religiously observant, so they would have been fasting as well. This was similar to what America experienced on December 7th, 1941, when the Japanese surprise attack came. Israel was not prepared for this onslaught, uh, not only from Egypt, primarily the instigators of the war, but from the Arab neighbors around them. Golda Meir, who was an American Jewish lady from Milwaukee, was the prime minister at that point. And she was in such desperate straits, she was calling for President Nixon to send an aircraft carrier to the Mediterranean uh, to rearm the Israelis. Uh, Israel almost lost that battle. They lost a lot of their soldiers in the Yom Kippur War. And uh, Golda Meir was at the point of, of resigning because she thought she was going to have to surrender in 1973. Now we fast forward 50 years and a day to October 7th of this year. It was a Saturday a Shabbat. It was a day of quiet and rest. It was at the end of one of Israel's most joyful holidays. So the fall festivals begin with the Feast of Trumpets on the first of the month on the Jewish calendar. And then 10 days later is Yom Kippur, the most solemn day, the day on which Egypt had attacked back in 1973. And then right after Yom Kippur, this time of, of Fasting, you, you know, the synagogue service ends with the blowing of the shofar. And that is when, according to the rabbinic tradition, the books are closed for the year. Uh, God has decided in the 10 days of awe between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, who is going to be consigned to the book of life for the year to come and whose life will be taken in the year ahead. So once that solemn ceremony is over, then people's hearts already begin to prepare for Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. So five days of preparation, building the sukkah, the little booth. Uh, if you were to go to New York City uh, last week, you would have seen sukkahs all over the place in the Jewish neighborhoods. It was one of the delights of experiencing Jewish life in Jerusalem was we lived there in the early 80s and saw sukkahs built by private families for their family to sometimes sleep out in to eat a meal at least once a day. Early in the morning, Hamas in mass came over the border and you've seen the images on the news. Uh, you've heard the horrific stories. 260 young people at an overnight rave down in the desert, slaughtered. Motorcyclists came in. Some of them... Uh, not only killed folks, but they captured and took hostage people from that rave. Kibbutzim were overrun. 
the Siderot Police Department, Siderot's been in the news often because many times the rockets that the Hamas folks have sent from Gaza have been aimed at Siderot. There are believers uh, who, there's a congregation uh, of believers, Messianic believers there in Siderot. Their police department was overrun. All the police officers, some 25, I think, were killed. Uh, the stories of the horror have filled our, our pages and screens. You've seen images of blood-soaked living rooms and bedrooms. Uh, the horror of 1,300 Israelis killed in a day and really an unknown number of hostages taken, uh, perhaps 150 to 200, don't know when we'll ever know, uh, or if we'll ever know, the, the full number. Israel, again, caught by surprise. And one of the biggest shocks was that Israel was caught by surprise because Israel's intelligence gathering capabilities are well known. Uh, the stories of successes of the Mossad, everybody remembers the story of how Israel went in and into Iran. They went into the very place where the nuclear secrets were stored and took truckloads of the actual documents out so that Bibi Netanyahu could stand up before the UN and say, no, Iran does have nuclear bomb ambitions. The book about that that was written by two Jerusalem Post journalists was just published this month. Cybersecurity is one of Israel's leading technologies. That fence that separated Israel from Gaza was filled with electronic sensors. The level of planning that went into this as Israel has now begun to gather some of the intelligence from the captured or killed Hamas terrorists demonstrate that for more than a year, in a very sophisticated way, this was being planned the horrors that Israel is enduring. They, you know, it's Jewish tradition to bury within 24 hours. They don't re really have time to mourn because the threat is ongoing. And even this morning, we had the news of the still waiting Israeli forces that have been massed. People have been flying from all over the world. Their, their reserve units are at a plus capacity in preparation for going in to try to rescue the hostages, and you know what a challenge that's going to be. This is the most serious attack on Israel since the Yom Kippur War, and we're still probably at the very beginning of this. How, how long the world will be able to stomach uh, images of Palestinian children being paraded through streets and funeral beers is really an open question. No time to mourn, a time to fight. Where do we turn for perspective on such scenes of mass murder, <coughs> wanton violence? How do we make sense of what is so senseless? Where do we find hope in the midst of trauma and tragedy? God's word contains the record of many attacks on Israel many times when Israel's been under siege. And Psalm 83, our text for today, is one of those. So we'll turn there this morning. It's not a very long poem. A psalm, a sheer, a 
poem was written by Asaf. This is not the first of Asaf's uh, poems or poems attributed to him. It's the last. His first is in 50, Psalm 50. But Psalm 73 begins a series of 11 psalms, of which Psalm 83 is the last. Now, Psalm 74 and 79 have a psalm of Asaph written over them, but they include scenes of destruction of the temple. Asaph was a lead musician. He was a Levite who was a a music, a worship leader in King David's court. So David reigned around 1000 BC, and the temple was destroyed in 586 BC. So for Asaph to write about the destruction of the temple, it can't be the same Asaph. But just like with the sons of Korah, we have probably a family line of psalmists who write under that name. This psalm, Psalm 83, begins this way. O God, do not remain quiet. Do not be silent. And O God, do not be still. Hebrew is a wonderfully compact language. Uh, The the lexicon for Hebrew words uh, is filled with words that uh, help us to understand things that have multiple layers of meaning. And it's not so usual to find three different words, synonyms, that basically say the same thing. But this is an example of three discrete Hebrew words that are used and translated for us, don't remain quiet, don't be silent, and don't be still. The last one uh, has as its root sheket. And if you were to go to Israel today and go into a noisy classroom and a teacher comes in, probably the first word that you're going to hear her say to the class is sheket, be quiet. Okay, it's time to study, let's... Stop the noise. So that's the third of these. Uh, There's not so much nuanced difference between them. It's just a way of reinforcing. Here's the cry of the psalmist. And the first person who's introduced to us in the psalm is God. God is the one who is being appealed to, to not be quiet. Don't be still. And it's not just the idea of uh, open your mouth. The idea is, is to take action. You know, we can tell someone to sit still and we, we mean more than just close your mouth. We mean don't be active. The opposite is being asked of God here. Open your mouth, speak. How can you be silent in the midst of what we're going through? And what is Israel going through? Well, this is a national struggle. This is a time of national trauma and tragedy. We learn in verse two, behold, your enemies make an uproar and those who hate you have exalted themselves. So the word uproar stands in stark contrast to being silent, to being quiet. Well, what does it mean for the enemy to make an uproar? <laughs> well, we saw it on our screens when, when Israelis captured pictures of the people running through the streets with guns and shooting and yelling, death to Israel, death to America, and Allahu Akbar, God is the greatest. There is, there is foment, there is fury, there is, there is anger, there is, 
This is not boisterousness as, as in being joyful, but it's boisterousness as being, being cheering when, when your enemy is being slaughtered in the streets. It's one of the hardest things for us to wrap our minds around is how can you rejoice when babies are being beheaded? How can you rejoice when old people are being killed in their beds? How can you shout aloud gleefully when this is happening? This is the kind of thing that was being faced in Asaf's day. And he's saying, Lord, how can you be silent? Don't, don't be silent. Those who exalt themselves against you are lifting up their heads, filled with pride, filled with arrogance. They're exalting themselves. And verse three says, they make shrewd plans against your people. In addition to the shock of the surprise of the attack on October 7th, was the detailed level of the planning. For more than a year, some say as long as two years, the heads of Hamas have been been planning this. Everybody was struck by how much intelligence the enemy had gathered. So they knew exactly where the communication center was. Ten miles away, they reached on motorcycle very quickly and caught the Israelis unaware. They cut the communication systems, and that had a tremendous effect on Israel not being able to mobilize quickly. And he says, against your people, against your people, God, the enemies have come. Satan cannot attack God directly. It's a false image to say that there's a spiritual battle that's going on and here's God and here's Satan and, and Satan is fighting against God. And the reason that that's a false picture is not because there's not a real battle. It's just that Satan and God are not at all on the same level. God is so much highly exalted over his creation and Satan is a created being. So yes, Satan wants to fight against God, but it can't on any level be considered a fair fight, as though Satan would want to fight fair anyway. So since Satan can't attack God directly, what does he attack? Whatever God especially loves, Satan especially hates. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He didn't say Satan wasn't going to try to destroy the church. And I'm confident that even in this congregation, there are people here who have endured spiritual attack on the individual level, but there's also attack at the corporate level. Satan loves to bring in false teaching or a spirit of dissension and strife, bring disagreement, separating even the best of friends. One of the images that is in my mind as a kid, my dad was a pastor, and our church plant started in our home in Connecticut when I was 10 years old. It was my family and another couple from a nearby town who had been part of the church that my dad had previously pastored about 20 miles away. And this older couple had no children, but they came and they stayed, uh, they came to help us plant the church. And Uncle John and Aunt Verna were not physically related to me, but they were as close to me as my physical uncles and aunts. And I have a very clear memory of one time when I was home from college, and it was a Wednesday night, it was the end of the service, and everybody was gone, the sanctuary was dark, and Uncle John and my dad were standing up in the front. 
and Uncle John was livid, and he was a quiet man. I had never heard him raise his voice, but he was reaming my dad left and right because Aunt Verna had been the church treasurer from the early onset of the church, which now decades later had grown. And at the church business meeting, Aunt Verna didn't get elected as treasurer. Somebody thought maybe she needed a break. I don't know. Another name was nominated and the other person. And John was accusing my dad of orchestrating this coup so that Verna, who had served so faithfully, did he not appreciate the sacrifices that they had made? And my dad was standing there crying. It was one of the clearest illustrations to me of how Satan loves to divide even the best of friends. The spiritual war is very real. But it's not just on the relational level. It's also, in this case, on a military level. Satan hates the Jewish people, and he can't destroy God, but he wants to destroy the people of Israel. That's why we have the story of Passover, where the baby boys of Israel are being killed when they're delivered, because Pharaoh wants the Jewish people not to continue to multiply. It's the story of Haman, who hates one man, Mordecai, and decides that he's going to kill all the Jewish people. In 127 provinces of the Persian Empire, there's an edict of death, because one guy hates another guy so much. You can't explain the depth and breadth of anti-Semitism apart from the spiritual element. And that's what we have here when the psalmist is appealing to God not to be quiet when the enemy is raging because your people are in the crosshairs, Lord. Now, is this a legitimate plea on Asaph's part to, to identify the Jewish people as God's people? Well, yes, it is because God identifies the Jewish people as his people. In Hebrew, there's a, a little word, ami. The word am is the word for people. And the pronominal suffix, the personal pronoun for my people is the little yod, the I at the end. Ami, my people. One little word, three letters, and it's used multiple times. The first time is actually found in that Exodus story where God looks down and he sees the suffering of my people, ami. That's the first use of 172 times in the Old Testament scriptures. And of that, 35 times it says, my people Israel. But I've gone and looked, and every time in the scripture, in context that Ami is used, Israel is who God has in mind. There's only one exception to that, and that's in Isaiah chapter 19, where God's talking about the prophetic future when Israel and Syria and Egypt will be one. And he calls Egypt my people in the future. I think that's pretty cool. God has a heart for the nations as well. But my people almost exclusively refers to the Jewish people. And so when we go to the Lord in intercession on behalf of the Jewish people, it is not wrong for us to say, your people Israel, your people Israel. We like to think that Israel is a holy people in the holy land, but I can promise you that that is not the case. Israel has one of the highest abortion rates in the world. Tel Aviv is considered the gay capital of the world. There are lots of reasons why you can look at Israeli society, and not just from the secular point of view, 
And that secular religious divide that we referenced in Sunday school is very real, it's very deep, and it's growing wider. But on the religious side of things, uh, when Paul says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, he's not kidding. He's talking about his own people, the Pharisees, and the ultra-Orthodox today are the direct spiritual, if not physical, descendants of the Pharisees. These are people, Paul says, that have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. And now he's talking about all those rabbinic traditions that have built up in more and more over the years. And so you have a secular people who don't know who God is. One of the saddest things that I saw this last week, one of the saddest things was an interview with a survivor, a boy whose mom and dad were in the same kibbutz with him when the Hamas terrorists came in. And to their credit, they did their very best to protect their son. In fact, the mom was cradling the son when she was shot, and the terrorists must have thought that the boy, who was a teenager, was dead because he laid still. His mom and his dad are dead. And he's being interviewed days later. And as he's telling the story, he said, I was so scared, I didn't know what to do. I cried out to a God, to any God, to any God who was out there, and my heart broke. To any God who is out there? You're a direct descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The people to God said, I will be to you a God. And you will be to me a people. They conspired together against your treasured ones, Asaf says. They've conspired together against your treasured ones. The word for treasured here is when you secrete something that's precious to you, you, you hide it away so that you can protect it. In the day of trouble, he will conceal me, Psalm 27 says. It's the same Hebrew word. He will conceal me. He will lift me up on a rock. God uses language about Israel that he doesn't use about any other nation. He calls Israel his segula, his prized treasure, in his Exodus 19, verse 5. You'll be my own possession among all the peoples. All the earth is mine, God says, but you, you are my treasured possession. You're a holy people to the Lord your God, Deuteronomy 7 says. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. He uses the term inheritance, people for his own inheritance in Deuteronomy 4. He calls them the apple of his eye in Zechariah 2, verse 8. After glory, he has sent me against the nations which plunder you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. He uses familial language. Israel is my firstborn, he says in Exodus out of Egypt I have called my son, Hosea chapter 11. You are the sons of the Lord your God, Deuteronomy 14 verse 1. God says, Israel is his spouse. Though I was a husband to you, he says in Jeremiah 31, 32. 
and they're always on God's mind. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb, Isaiah asks? If there's any question that should be rhetorical, it's this. Can a woman forget her nursing child? But, but we know the depravity of the human heart. We've, we've set up whole systems and structures to care for neglected children. Lori's sister was the head of pediatric neonatal intensive care at a leading hospital in Chicago. Decades ago, a woman came into the emergency room and she was bleeding. And the doctors examined her and said, where's your baby? The woman had given birth and reluctantly she said she didn't want to have this baby. She wrapped it in plastic and put it in the freezer in her home. And when the doctors found out about this, they sent the EMTs racing to that woman's house They rescued this frozen piece of humanity, brought this little girl back, warmed her blood, and brought her back to life. Can a woman forget her nursing child? We want to say, no, it can't happen. But God says, these may forget, but I will not forget you, Israel. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. But Israel has real threats, nations that want to destroy her. You can read throughout the pages of the Old Testament scriptures. Rome was in charge of Israel when when Jesus walked the earth. We know of the tensions that were part of daily life for Jesus and his disciples. But in Asaph's day, he says in verse 4, they've said, come and let us wipe them out as a nation. This is exactly the same threat that jihadist Islam is echoing today, that the name of Israel be remembered no more. Do you see the signs of the protesters in New York and in major cities around the world? Those who are supporting Hamas I'm talking about. From sea to sea. From sea to sea is a code word for saying there's not going to be a Jewish state here anymore. From sea to sea, Islam is going to reign once again, that the name of Israel be remembered no more, for they've conspired together with one mind, and against you they make a covenant. Against you, Lord, against you, the God of Israel. That's who they're conspiring against. That's who this covenant is against. Notice the direct connection between Israel being under threat and the underlying reality that God is the one who they are fighting against. David recognizes this in the story of David and Goliath. When he walks out to see Goliath and stands in front, this teenage boy stands in front of this giant of a man who's dressed in all the armor of the Philistines. And he says, you have defied the God of Israel. He's not saying you defied the the armies of Israel, which is what Goliath was doing day after day. But David understood that this is a battle that belongs to the Lord. This will not stand. You will not stand. You are going down because you have defied the living God, the God of Israel. Verse six, he begins to list the enemies of Israel and they are numerous. The tents of Edom. Edom is Esau, the firstborn twin of Jacob. The Ishmaelites, these are the sons of Hagar, Ishmael. Moab, the sons of Lot's eldest daughter, Genesis 19. The Hagrites, the descendants of Hagar. Gebel is mentioned in Joshua 13, land to the north of Israel. Ammon, 
Lot's youngest daughter's son, Genesis 19. Amalek, famous enemy of Israel, and even to this day, the ultra-Orthodox refer to Gentile enemies of Israel, including Christianity, as Amalek. And the curses against Amalek are applied even to today. Philistia, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Ekron, Gath, and Gaza were the five cities of Philistia in David's day. And the inhabitants of Tyre, the port city in Lebanon. Assyria, modern-day Turkey, also has joined with them. They have become a help to the children of Lot. So here in this basket, Asaph is piling all the names of the enemies who are defying not just Israel, but who are standing against the God of Israel, who want to see Israel's name obliterated, which will reflect on God's name. And so what is Asaph asking God to do? To speak up, to act. Look at verse 9. Deal with them as with Midian. And now Asaph goes back to history, not just to recall who the enemies were, but what God did to those enemies. Gideon in Judges chapter 7 defeated Midian. Sisera and Jabin at the torrent of Kishon. This is the story of Judges chapter 4. Remember when Yael, Jael, nailed Sisera in the head? who were destroyed at Endor, who became as dung for the ground. Dung is a nice, pleasant word in English. It's not so nice in Hebrew. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb. Judges chapter 7, the Midianites and Gideon once again. And their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna. Judges chapter 8, who said, let us possess for ourselves the pasture of God. In other words, the territory that God gave to Israel and delineated their borders when he made the unconditional blood covenant with Abram back in Genesis chapter 15. God and God alone passes between the sacrifice pieces, obligating only himself. The land covenant is unconditional for Israel. The title deed was given to Abraham and to his descendants. And what does Asaph ask further of the Lord in dealing with the enemies of Israel? Oh my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind like fire that burns the forest, like a flame that sets the mountains on fire. So pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your storm. Fill their faces with dishonor. Pastor Joe introduced this as an imprecatory psalm. Do you know what an imprecation is? It's a curse. It's a curse. Asaph is calling down God's wrath upon the enemies of God. Fill their faces with dishonor right? Wipe them out, God, because we hate them. But that's not what he says. He says that they may seek your name, O Lord. This is something that's unexpected. We understand what hatred is like. We understand what wanting to punch the bully who punched us feels like. But Asaph understands that this spiritual battle has a purpose, that God chose Israel for a purpose. They were to be a light to the nations, right? What God did when he selected Israel as a people for his own name was he said, you be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Israel was to be his representatives here on earth. Now, the wonderful thing of that, as Moses points out in his closing sermons there in Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30, is that when Israel is obedient, God's going to bless them. 
And all the nations around are gonna see that blessing and they're gonna say, wow, Israel's God is the true God. But Moses also said, I know your hearts. And when you turn away from the Lord, then the curses are gonna follow. And guess what? The nations are gonna take note. and They're gonna say, Israel's God is the true God. The wonderful thing about identifying with a people is that they make your name great when they behave. When our kids were going to school, as younger kids, we would pray with them before we sent them out and we would remind them, remember who you belong to, right? But it wasn't just the Tabor name that they were taking into the community. We were identified as a Christian family. They were representing the Lord Jesus. When our kids behave, the Tabor name and God's name gets glorified. And if they misbehave, well, not so much. Let them be ashamed and dismayed forever. Let them be humiliated and perish. This is Asaf's prayer for those who were the ISIS and the Hamas of his day. But he concludes that they may know that you alone, whose name is Yahweh, are the most high over all the earth. In other words, it's not just a selfish prayer. We all feel that way when we're oppressed, when our circumstances are such that it seems like the enemy is overwhelming. And, and it's a tremendous tragedy and trauma for us. And, and it hurts and we want it to stop. But do we go the extra step and say, Lord, glorify your name. Move in such a way, act in such a way, show your power in such a way that the world will, around will see the difference that Jesus makes. I don't see any place in scripture where it says, believe in Jesus and all your problems will be over. We don't, we don't do anybody a favor when we're leading them to Christ and say, you know, believe in Jesus and, and life is gonna be sunshine and roses. It's not, it's not. Believe in Jesus and strap on the armor because your spiritual battle is about to begin. You were in Satan's camp, the kingdom of darkness, and you've moved to the kingdom of God's dear son. You've changed allegiances. And Satan wasn't your buddy before, but he's your enemy now. Strap it on. But for God's glory, for God's name's sake, Lord, show yourself strong. Glorify yourself in this situation. Help me to respond in such a way that I reflect the reality of my faith in the midst of the storms of life, the difficult circumstances and challenges. Why, why did God choose Israel? Deuteronomy 7. Sometimes I talk to Jewish people who say, uh, well, you know, we're not really the chosen people. If you've seen Fiddler on the Roof, and if you haven't seen Fiddler on the Roof, you can take that as an assignment from your special speaker this morning. You're missing out on a tremendous musical experience, but it gives you great insight into Jewish mindset. Tevye, at one point, the poor milkman who's dealing with a lame horse and multiple tragedies in his life of one sort or another, is talking to the Lord as is his want. And he looks up to heaven, he says, if this is what it means to be chosen, why don't you choose somebody else for a while, <laughs> right? But, but are the Jewish people really God's chosen people? It'd be nice for you know, us to think as Americans that we're special to God, 
I think everybody wants to think that they're special to God if they know who God is. But God's the one who chose Israel. Israel didn't choose God, contrary to what the Talmud teaches. Deuteronomy 7, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of the peoples. You could say you weren't the richest, you weren't the bravest, you weren't the most famous. God started with one man and said, I will make of you a great name. I will make of you a people. You were the fewest of, of all the peoples, but here it is, because the Lord loved you, because the Lord loved you. Now this is no shock to us because we understand that God is a God of love. We quote John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Out of a heart of love, God gives. God chooses, God acts out of love because the Lord loved you and he kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. God is a God with a heart of love He's a God who keeps his promises. And that's why God chose you. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. This is the Exodus story where God adopts Israel as his people. And he says, I loved you and I made promises to your fathers. And that's why you're getting out of Egypt. His motivation was love and covenant faithfulness. But what was his purpose? That Israel would be the object lesson to the world, this kingdom of, of a holy nation and, and of priests, that they would be God's representatives here on earth. So when Moses is at the burning bush, he sees this bush on fire and it's not consumed and he approaches and he hears this voice, Moses, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. And Moses does not know who he's talking to when God says, I want you to go to Pharaoh, you be as God to Pharaoh. And Moses' question is, first question is, who am I? That's a good question when you're being tasked with something that's beyond your capability. It's to recognize our own insufficiency. Paul says, not many of you are wise, not many of you are noble. God delights to use the weak and foolish things of the world to confound the wise. So if you're feeling inadequate, as Moses did, that's not a bad place to be if you understand who God is. And that was the second question is, who are you? Who am I, Moses asked. And he says, who are you? Who should I say sent me? Who is this I'm talking to? And God identifies himself as I am the Lord your God, the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's essential that we know who God is. Without knowing who God is, how can we represent him? I'm not convinced that Moses really knew the God of his fathers. Where would he have known about the God of his fathers? He was raised in Pharaoh's household. They had all kinds of deities that they worshipped. And then the next 40 years of his life, he's with the priest of Midian, his father-in-law Jethro. Was Moses having daily devotions out in the desert as an 80-year-old, kicking sheep dung in the pasture? I don't think so. When he's talking to God, he says, who are you? And when he goes to Pharaoh and says, thus says Jehovah, the God of Israel, let my people go. Pharaoh says, well, who's Jehovah? I don't know the Lord. He says that. It's directly quoted in your Bible. I do not know Yahweh. I don't know who the God of Israel is. And God says, no, you don't, but you will. <laughs> you will. 
Against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute my judgments, God says. That's why we have 10 plagues in the Exodus story. And God's sovereign intention is revealed to us very clearly in the book of Exodus. So you're teaching through the book of Exodus and you find Pharaoh saying, I don't know who God is. And then you find six times in the book of Exodus that God says through Moses to Pharaoh that you may know that I am the Lord. Six times. But God also says it three times to the Egyptians that you, the Egyptians, may know that it's not Ra, the sun god, it's not your cow god, it's not the Nile River that you worship because it brings fertility to the land when it overflows its banks every spring. It's not Pharaoh who you worship as a god. Against all these gods, God demonstrated his power in executing the judgments of the plagues. Three times God says that you, Egyptians, may know that I am the Lord. But here was the curious thing I saw in teaching Exodus, is that God also says six times to the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the people that he's adopting as his own. He says six times to the Jewish people in Egypt that you may know that I am the Lord. Well, if God says it six times to Pharaoh because he doesn't know who the Lord is, and he says it three times to the Egyptians because they don't know who the Lord is, why do you suppose God might say it six times to the Jewish people? that you may know that I am the Lord. Don't you suppose that in those 400, 430 years to the day, we learn later that God delivers them, don't you suppose that the faith of many had become weak? Don't you suppose that decades of oppression and enslavement would cause people to doubt the Lord? Don't you suppose that seeing the might of the Egyptian army, this empire that was spreading throughout the known world, that somebody might say, well, maybe their gods are the true gods because our God isn't showing up. I imagine that that was so. In fact, we learn in Ezekiel chapter 20 that God says through Moses to the elders of Israel, I'm going to get you out of here, but first you must put away your idols, every one of you. Every one of you must put away the abominable things of Egypt. Did you know that many in Israel had become idolaters while they were in Egypt? We don't see that in Exodus, but you find it in Ezekiel. And in fact, in Ezekiel chapter 20, you find six times that God says through the prophet Ezekiel that you, Israel, may know that I am the Lord. What? God says it six times to the Jewish people in Exodus? And he says it six times in Ezekiel 20, that you may know that I am the Lord, separated by geography, Egypt, now the land of Israel, separated by generations, that you may know that I am the Lord. And when you do a deeper dive into the book of Ezekiel, you'll find that that phrase, that you may know that I am the Lord, occurs not 15 times, as in the book of Exodus, not 15 times two, not 15 times two times two, but 63 times God says that you may know because God wants to be known. God is a missionary God. That you may know occurs 63 times in Ezekiel. 
19 times to a specific nation, seven times to Egypt, four times to Edom, two times to Ammon and Sidon, some of these very same names of people groups that Asaph mentions in chapter 83 in Psalms. God wants to be known. Listen to Isaiah 43.10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, speaking to Israel, and my servant whom I have chosen. There it is again. God chose Israel. So that you may know, there's our phrase, and believe me. See, it's not just sufficient that people know God, know about God, I should say. The demons know who God is and they tremble, right? It's not simply enough to acknowledge that there is a God. God says, you, you need to believe me. And I have to think in a congregation this size that there may be somebody who knows about God. Maybe you grew up in the church. You know, Lori and I are both preacher's kids and we were in church before we knew what church was. And I, I could tell you the stories of, you know, Jonah and the ark. But knowing about God is not the same as knowing God. It's not the same as believing God. Believe me and understand that I am he. Three verbs, know, believe, and understand. Know, believe, and understand. What a difference our worldview takes on when God has his proper position. When we see God as the sovereign of the universe, not just the creator and sustainer of all that is, but our personal God, the one who knows us by name, the one who, who knows the numbers of hairs on our head, who knows the purpose for the trial, the tribulation, the struggle, the lack, the unmet desire of your heart today. Before me, there was no God formed and there will be none after me. If this God is not the one who is sufficient. There is no other. So we see over and over again, including here in Psalm 83, that God is a God who wants to be known. That's why we get to be ambassadors for Christ. It's our primary job is to represent him well so that we can present him well. I think sometimes we focus on the let's learn how to present him well, and we don't work so much on the represent him well. But if we're not representing him well, then how we present him is gonna sound hollow. Now, I don't believe that this line that says, preach the gospel, sometimes use words if necessary, is, is accurate. I think the gospel is to be proclaimed in words, but it needs to be done out of a life of integrity. And that doesn't mean we have to be perfect because there are no perfect instruments, right? But to represent the Lord well means I need to be walking in the spirit. I need to have a spirit of humility and faith and obedience. Three key words that we emphasize a lot at Life and Messiah. Isaiah 60, verses first 15 to 21, I won't read them all. Although you've been forsaken and hated, with no one traveling through, I will make you the everlasting pride and joy of all generations. This is God speaking to Israel. You've been forsaken, you've been hated, but he's talking about a day yet future. 
I will make you the everlasting pride and the joy of all generations. No longer will violence, violence in Hebrew is the Hebrew word Hamas. Isn't that interesting? No longer will violence, Hamas, be heard in your land, nor ruin or destruction within your borders, but you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun will no longer be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you, for the Lord will be your everlasting light. This is like in Revelation where there's no need of sun and moon anymore, right? Because the the lamb is going to be the light. The Lord will be your everlasting light. Your God will be your glory. Your sun will never set again. Your moon will wane no more. The Lord will be your everlasting light. Your days of sorrow will end. Watch this, verse 21. Then all your people will be righteous and they will possess the land forever. Amos talks about the fact that Israel is going to be established in the land and they won't be kicked out ever again. It's not the only place in scripture where the foreverness of the land covenant is underscored. For I do not want you to be uninformed, Paul says in Romans 11, of this mystery so that you'll be wise in your own estimation, right? A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Partial and temporary. Not all of Israel is spiritually blinded. There's been a messianic movement that's growing in our day for which we rejoice. But in every generation, there have been faithful Jewish people who've come to know the Lord. And in the new covenant, that comes through faith in the Lord Jesus. You cannot have the Father without the Son. Jesus made that very clear. A Jewish person who says that they believe in God, but they reject Jesus, doesn't know the God of Israel in a personal way. And then Paul says, and so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, and then he quotes the Old Testament, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Can I talk with you plainly for a minute? So our founder, William Blackstone, is written up in the Encyclopedia Judaica because of his efforts on behalf of the establishment of a safe homeland, a refuge for the Jewish people who were suffering in Russia in the days of the pogroms. That's the Fiddler on the Roof generation, actually. At the end of that movie, Tibia, the milkman, and Laser Wolf, the butcher, are outside of Anatevka, this mythical village that was representative of so many, in Ukraine and and Russia that were under such heavy persecution. And they're talking about where they're being displaced to. And Tevye's going to New York and Laser's coming over to Chicago. And Tevye says, oh good, we'll be neighbors. (laughs) They had no idea what the new world held in store for them. Well, Blackstone was among those who saw the influx of the Jewish people, and that's why the Chicago Hebrew Mission was founded in 1887. But he also saw the need for a refuge for the wider Jewish population that weren't able to escape to the United States or some supposed safe haven in Europe, and we know how that worked out in the 1940s for much of European Jewry. He said, Blackstone was not a seminarian. He was a layman, but he loved the word of God and he read the promises of God and he saw that there was still a promised regathering of the people to the land. And that's why he actively worked to get the governments of the world to approve what the League of Nations eventually did do 
with the mandate for Palestine that was given to the Brits in 1920. In the modern state that was established in 1948. Now there are an increasing number of Israelis who are starting to understand that Blackstone and evangelical Christians in our day are among their best friends. And so here's why I want to talk to you plainly. I don't want you to think that because we believe that Israel has a right to the land, the title deed belongs to them, that wrapping ourselves in the Israeli flag and showing support for Israel, and believe me, in such a sensitive time as this, I want God's people to stand for Israel. I do. But if our goal is simply political or military, and we are far short of what God calls for, for his people. Because what God has been focused on and what we've tried to emphasize here is it's the righteousness of God's people that reflects on his glory. I think it's wonderful that Israel has been restored to the land. I think it's wonderful that Israel stands as an independent state. And I want her enemies to be defeated. I want to be very clear about this. If I'm choosing sides in this upcoming battle, I am wholeheartedly against the terror and the spirit of violence and wickedness that is so represented in ISIS slash Hamas. They need to be destroyed. They need to be defeated. But those are also human beings with souls. And the, the people of Gaza who've been influenced by the propaganda that they've been subjected to for generations now, they're not our enemies. They're the victim of our enemy, and they need to be prayed for as well. The slaughter of people on either side of this conflict ought to break our hearts. It ought to grieve us. And just asking for God to give military victory to Israel is not sufficient if their hearts remain unrepentant and the land is unrighteous and her people. So pray, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Yes, pray for victory over evil. Yes, but pray for righteousness to prevail. Pray for the spirit of God to convict so that the holy land will be filled with holy people and God's name will be glorified. That's the end that we know is coming. Jeremiah says, no longer will a man teach his neighbor saying, know the Lord, for they won't all know me. From the least to the greatest. That's the end of the story, but we're not there yet. So there's a battle to be fought on the ground in Gaza. I fear many thousands are going to die. And many of them are going to go to a Christless eternity. If it matters to God, it should matter to us. The righteousness of Israel matters to God. And the best way to glorify God and to bless Israel is to give them the gospel. Thank you for your prayers and for your support. We have staff who are serving in Israel. A piece of a rocket landed on the porch of our rehab center in Ashkelon, one of the old 
Philistine cities, of which Gaza, neighboring Gaza, 10 miles away, was also a part. When the sirens go off, our staff are running to the shelters the same as their Israeli neighbors. We want peace to prevail in the land. But far more, we want the peace that passes understanding, that comes through a personal relationship. If there's anybody here this morning or in the sound of my voice who doesn't have that peace, that only the Prince of Peace can give, the peace which the world cannot give and cannot take away, I plead with you today, understand that it's your sins that have separated you from a holy God, a righteous God, whose eyes are too pure to even look at iniquity, Habakkuk tells us. But that pure, holy God loves us so much that while we were yet sinners, he sent his one and only son, the Lord Jesus, to take on human form and to die in our place. And to rise after three days as a demonstration of God's power and of the victory over sin and death and hell. And Satan is a defeated foe today. He still rages, but his doom is sure. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus as your personal Savior, I beg of you today, today place your trust in him for forgiveness of sin the gift of eternal life, the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God to instruct you and help you to live the righteous life that God designed and desires you to have. Let me pray with you. Lord, I just ask for your Spirit to move. Seal to every heart the truth of your word that you would have them to take home. We don't want to be like those who look in a mirror and walk away unchanged. We ask that your spirit apply the truth of the gospel, of your purpose and plan for mankind and for Israel as a nation to our hearts. Lord, break our hearts with what breaks your heart. Make our priorities the things that are kingdom priorities that make a difference for eternity. Use us for your glory. Watch over your people. Lord, protect, preserve, and bring to salvation your ancient people. We'll give you thanks and praise. B'Shem Yeshua, in Jesus' name. Amen.